1 Corinthians chapter 9. We begin our study once again since the Christmas break. Um, I say Christmas break. We studied the Christmas story for four weeks. But this week we're going to go back to our study in 1 Corinthians because um, that's where we were before we left. But I want to remind you that Paul is writing to the Corinthian church, which at the time was a church that was in a very pagan city, a city that was not uh, full of Christians. It wouldn't be called a Christian nation if we went there. We'd go there and go, wow, what is, I mean, where is the background of this society? How was this country formed? And you'd see temples where there would be temple prostitutes out on the steps, uh, conveying men to come and worship at their temple. It was a very heinous thing. In their society, though, it was normal. It was normal. It would be like going to any city where prostitution was legal, and you would just see it. And of course, we would be uncomfortable in that because, you know, in, in many ways, though some of that stuff goes on in the background, we still don't have people walking up and down the streets soliciting for certain favors and for money. But in some places, that is commonplace. And so um, here we have this Corinthian city where sexual immorality is is very prominent. We have this city where idolatry is the norm. People are worshiping all kinds of different gods. They, they worship success and study and knowledge, uh, much like our college campuses do. Uh, I went to college for five and a half years to get my four-year degree. And while I was there, I probably would have gotten out quicker if I hadn't been so into all the things that were going on in college campuses. Imagine, if you will, and I'm sure some of you know that when you go to a college campus, you have a young group of people from anywhere from 18 years old and up, and they're all there to get an education, but because they're from away from their parents for the first time in their life, in some ways, if they have no reason not to, they let it rip. In many ways, I don't even have to go into detail, and you guys know what college campuses are known for. I went to Rolla, so we were known for drinking. That was our pastime. And so imagine being in a city that was much like a modern day college campus, except not as cleaned up in many ways. So you have this city where Paul has in the past, he's gone there, he shared the gospel with individual people, and out of that has sprung a church plant that has grown into a healthy fellowship where the believers there are not only Christians, but they're been given the gifts that God gives to his people, and they were all the gifts that are spoken of in the New Testament. Gifts that were used to edify and strengthen the church in the teaching of the word, and leading in worship, and also in one-on-one discipleship. And they had Bible study groups, and they had all these things going on, but one of the problems was they had lots of division. They had lots of problems with people having one thing that is the most important to them in Scripture and somebody else having something that was their hobby horse and somebody else having their soapbox and they had their favorite Bible teachers and they would disagree with one another about all these things that were good things, but they were never meant to divide the church and cause there to be pain and brokenness. So Paul rebukes them sturdily and he also rebukes them because they had allowed certain sins that were in their culture to creep into the church culture and atmosphere that should never have been even spoken of, let alone commonplace in the body of believers. So he corrects them using the word of God as his guide 
And he makes sure that they know that certain attitudes and certain sinful behaviors, if continued in, are not to be allowed in the fellowship of the church. And so he was cleaning house, much like Jesus was cleansing the temple when he went in and found out that, that people were gaining money by selling things that, you know, they, they had missed the point that it would, they were to be in the place that God was to meet with the Lord and there should be holiness amongst believers. And so we got uh, past that section and he started dealing with some of the specific questions that they had written to him in a letter. And when he was asking these, they were asking these questions, he would address them directly in a very practical way. So he wrote a letter to respond to their questions. And one of the questions that we addressed five weeks ago now was, should we eat meat? Now, the question becomes, should we eat certain types of foods? And in this case, they're talking about meat. So you, you could see where this is not just a question of whether or not we eat certain types of food, but there must be a little bit more to it. Because God has given all things for us to eat, and he said they were good. He did have certain regulations for the Jews before the new covenant. And he said, you know, Peter, he spoke specifically to Peter in the beginning of the book of Acts. And he said, you know, take and go and kill and eat, Peter. And Peter said, I can't do that. There are certain things that are unclean to me because I'm a Jew. And the Lord responded to him in different ways by speaking to him and saying, do not call unclean, Peter. What I have said is clean. He wasn't speaking to Peter about food as much as he was speaking about the Gentile people who to the Jews at the time were very unclean because they weren't the people of God, the chosen people of God like the Jews were. They didn't follow the law. They didn't circumcise their children. They didn't sacrifice at the temple. They didn't do all these things that Jews saw as earning their righteousness before God. What they did was they did what all Gentiles do. They, they worshiped pagan idols. They, they lived sinful lifestyles. They had no reason not to. But now the Lord decided to reveal himself to these Gentile cultures through his word and through witnesses that had walked with Jesus. And so in John 3.16, we get the picture of God's overarching theme of what he was going to do in redeeming the world. For God so loved the world that he gave. We just, you know, we just uh, celebrated that at Christmas. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son so that, so that whosoever shall believeth in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. It's a free gift. It's not something that you and I can boast about. It's what he does for us. His birth is more like our birthday than it is his because he came and gave, we receive. But then John 3.17 says, For Christ did not come into the world to condemn the world. The world was already condemned. But he came in the world that through him the world might be reconciled to God or brought back into relationship with. And no man can have a relationship with God unless his sins, which separate him from God, are first dealt with, his slate cleaned. And so for that, we have the spotless blood of the Lamb. The spotless Lamb of God provided for us by God the Father. And so all of that being said, this is what Paul is teaching them. And as he's teaching them that, he's saying, this meat that you're worried about eating or not eating, it's really inconsequential. 
But the, the kingdom of God is not meat nor drink, but it's righteousness, peace, and joy. So we have freedom in Christ. We don't have to worry about what kind of foods to eat and not eat anymore. It's not about that. So we have liberty in Christ to do whatever. Psalm 37 says, uh, you shall love the Lord your God. Well, no. So he says, delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. If you're delighting in the Lord, then you will delight in what he delights in. And so what he says here is you do have the freedom to do whatever you want. Except that your freedom start to stomp on somebody else. Start to trespass against them. I was listening to James Vernon McGee and in order to illustrate this, he talked about us being able to swing our arms or, or swing our fists. He said, you can swing your fist in any direction that you want to. That's your personal freedom. But when my nose gets in the way of your fist, you no longer have the freedom to swing your fist in that direction because then it directly affects your brother or your sister. Does that make sense? So we have freedom to swing in every direction until someone else, it's going to harm someone else. And in the body of Christ, we have the freedoms we have freedom in Christ. We don't, we don't have to earn our salvation. It's already been done. But if our freedoms, if what we exercise as our rights start to kind of quench other people's rights and freedoms, then it's no longer freedom to us, but it's sin. And so Paul explained, he says, beware in verse 9 of chapter 8, lest somehow this freedom or this liberty of yours becomes a stumbling block to those who are weak. Because until this time... These brothers and sisters of yours who have been worshiping in temples have been eating the meat that's been sacrificed to their pagan idols. If they eat that meat, some of them, they won't be convicted at all. They're like, hey, that idol's nothing. I know that now. But some of them still go, they're eating meat from an, a pagan temple. That means that I can. And when I was eating it before, I that was a way of worshiping that God or that false God. So it would cause them to kind of go back into idolatry. But he says, um, therefore, this is what Paul ended with uh, five weeks ago in verse 13. He says, therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never again eat meat lest I make my brother stumble. I will not do anything to cause my brother and sister in Christ to stumble. So, now he gives this freedom or this idea of freedom. He's talking about freedom in Christ and he's talking about our rights and how though we have our rights, we sometimes are called to lay them down. But Paul's going to give him, these Corinthian believers, an example of laying our rights down. And he doesn't start with talking about Billy Graham. He doesn't start talking with, about uh, someone else that he knows, Apollos or other people's examples. He starts with himself. He talks about himself as the example. He's not calling them to do anything that he's not first done. The best way that we can lead others is by our example. And sometimes we skip over that. Sometimes we look at others and go, well, look at so-and-so and live like them. You know, I'm a Christian, but I'm not perfect. And what Paul says, we're going to get there in 1 Corinthians 11, 1, is he says, imitate me as I also imitate Christ. And so everything that Paul's going to say about himself today, about laying down his rights, about giving up things for the sake of the gospel, he's only doing them because he's first seen Jesus do that for him. So he's giving his life as a pattern, and his life really is to point to Christ. 
He's not boasting about himself as much as he's boasting about the one that he follows. But when we say we follow Jesus and we don't do what he does, then we really are, we make ourselves out to be a liar. That's what 1 John says. But if we say that we walk in the light as he is in the light, then Jesus is the one that will be proclaimed through our lives. And so in 1 Corinthians 9, he continues and he starts asking some questions. He says to these believers, he says, Am I not an apostle? Am I not free? Have I not seen Jesus Christ our Lord? Are you not my work in the Lord? If I am not an apostle to the others, yet doubtless I am to you, for you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. Now we're going to get there, but in this passage, Paul's going to lay down a principle for why he does not take pay as a minister of the gospel. And in this particular circumstance, there are those within the Corinthian church saying, you know, Paul says a whole lot of stuff, but why do we need to listen to him? We don't even pay him. He's not, he's not even on staff at our church. Why do we need to listen to what he has to write down? And Paul's going to put lay out basically a defense for his apostleship. They don't believe that he's an apostle because all the other apostles, they take pay for what they do as their ministry. But Paul says, I have chosen not to take pay. He says, but in defense of his apostleship, God's calling on his life, he says, am I not an apostle? Because he's heard that there are those there that are saying he's not an apostle. He says, am I not free? What he's saying there is, am I not free? I'm under the yoke of no man, except that I'm accountable to Jesus himself. He says, have I not seen Jesus Christ, our Lord? One of the marks of an apostle is they had to actually witness and interact with Jesus. Now, in the case of Paul, Paul was not approached by Jesus until Jesus had been crucified. And he implies here that he actually had an interlude with Jesus, the resurrected Christ. In other words, he interacted with him. Just like the disciples, after the death, the burial, and the resurrection, he came and met with them in the upper room. And he wasn't just a spirit, but he had a resurrected body. We know this because he was able to walk through the wall even though the door was locked. And yet when Thomas, we call him Doubting Thomas, was there, Thomas had said, we have it recorded in one of the Gospels, unless I see the hole in his side and the hole in his hands, I will not believe. So Jesus shows up, he somehow comes through the wall, he's standing there, and he looks at Thomas and he calls him and he says, well, go ahead and touch the hole in my side. Go ahead and see the holes in my hands. Go ahead and touch them. And Thomas says, I don't need to. He was convinced that the Lord was risen. He was physical. And actually, Jesus even sat down and ate with them. He ate food. If he was a spirit, it'd be like Casper movies where the, the little ghosts, they eat the food and it falls on the floor. So that's not what was going on. And there are many down the road that will actually imply that Jesus wasn't actually in human flesh physically, that he was just a spirit and he made himself visible. But if that's the case, then he didn't shed the blood for our sins and we're still caught in our sins and trespasses. Our hope in Christ is futile. But what Paul is saying here is that he interacted with the risen Lord and that's what guarantees that he is in fact a called apostle. He says, are you not my work in the Lord? Now he talks about not just his calling, but also the fruit of his calling. 
You ever heard the phrase, the, 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 um, the proof is in the pudding? You know, the idea is, and, and actually one of the writers of the New Testament actually says, wisdom is justified by all her children. In other words, if you have godly wisdom, they will pr- produce children that will point back to the, the fact that the wisdom came from God. And so Paul's saying, not only am I called to be an apostle according to Jesus, but also look at the results of my apostleship. Look at the fact that there have been people that have been affected by the gospel by God sending me out. If anyone says that they are a believer in Christ, and yet they're not producing disciples by their lifestyle, by what's going on, if there's no disciples coming from them, you don't have to doubt their salvation, but it might be the case that either there's something going on there. Here's the principle. If you have a, a fold of sheep, you have a bunch of sheep, and they're all intermixed, male and female, and one of the females doesn't produce offspring, even though they've been with a male, what would you say about that sheep that doesn't produce offspring? You would say, <laughs> something's wrong. Healthy sheep reproduce. If you are a healthy healthy disciple of Jesus Christ, you will reproduce. There will be fruit that comes from your relationship with Him. There will be fruit that comes from that. As we abide in Christ and He in us, all of a sudden there's this power for us to lead others to Jesus. And there should be that fruit in our lives if we're healthy. Now there are many that are in the Christian church that are no doubt saved believers, but they're not healthy. And you can tell that because they're not producing, they're not bearing forth fruit. That's something for you and I not to look at other people and think about. That's something for you and I to think about in our own lives. Am I fulfilling the command of God? Am I going and making disciples as Jesus commanded to his disciples? It's still the same great commission. Go ye therefore into all nations and make disciples baptizing them in the name of the Father and in the Son and the Holy Spirit and teaching them all things that I've commanded you. And one of the ways we can do that is by, by living that way ourselves. And Paul says here, Are you not my work in the Lord? If I am not an apostle, verse 2, to others, yet doubtless it's no doubt that I am to you. Because look at all the stuff that's happened here. Look at your lives. They're changing. You can see the evidence of the Holy Spirit living within you. For you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. This seals the deal. The fact that you're walking with the Lord seals the fact that I'm an apostle is what Paul is saying. He says, so if there's any doubt about God calling me to go and be an apostle for him, then, uh, then look at your own lives and see the evidence of my apostleship. Verse three, he says, my defense the Greek word is apologia, which is just a, just a, a term for being in a, a judicial court. He says, my defense to those who examine me is this. And then he says, do we, not, do we have no right to eat and drink? Do we have no right to take along a believing wife, as do also the other apostles, the brother, brothers of the Lord and Cephas? Or is it only Barnabas and I who have no right to refrain from working? Whoever... I will stop there in verse 6. He says, My defense to those who examine my life and say I'm not an apostle, they're saying it's because I don't take pay. He says, But it's not because I don't have the right to do so. He says, I do have rights, and he lists them out. 
He says, do we have no right to eat and drink? He's not talking about the, the right to have a sandwich and drink some coffee. He's not talking about the right to eat and drink physically. He's talking about the right to take an allotment from the church who is tithing to that local body. Do I not have that right to be able to take from that and, and be provided for by the church that I'm ministering to? He says, of course I have that right. But then he says, do we have no right to take along a believing wife as do also the other apostles, the brothers of the Lord and Cephas? See, Paul, many believe, was actually a widower. Now, there are other theories out there, but either way, for whatever reason, he was single. And so because he was single, many people were like, well, all the other apostles, they've got wives that go around with them and minister. Where's yours? You know, hey, if that guy's not married, there's probably something wrong with him. You know, we get that idea. We look at people, we go, how come that guy's been single for so long? There's got to be something wrong going on there. Well, Paul's saying, don't we have the right as well to take along a believing wife? Now, if you read a few chapters back, you see that Paul had very strong opinions about marriage and how they pointed to the relationship with Jesus Christ. But he also said it's easier for someone to be able to be single, to be freed up from taking care of the home so that he can go and be used in a more effective way in his opinion. But he said, it's not my desire that everybody remain single. But he says, it is much easier to serve the Lord if you are single. But he says there, we do have the right to take on a believing wife. The idea is, is that if we were to take a salary, we have the right not only to take a salary to pay for our benefit, but also to take care of our wife, and in some cases, children. He says we have that right. We have the right to be provided for, for our physical needs. We have the right to be provided for in our financial needs, to take care of our families. And a little side note there in verse 5, isn't it interesting? Do we not have right to take along a believing wife? as do also the other apostles. And he lists in there the brothers of the Lord and Cephas. Now, who's Cephas? <coughs> Peter. Okay. But wait a minute. I thought the first pope was single. Well, Scripture seems to imply that Peter actually had a wife, even though there is now in the Catholic Church, they say, in order to be in these higher positions and even to be a priest, you have to be single. There's a vow of celibacy. You're married to the Lord. But in this case, it looks like the, the very first apostles were actually, a lot of them married and they took them along with them as they served. Just a side note. Verse six, or is it only Barnabas and I who have no right to refrain from working? The idea is that Barnabas and Paul had taken up a very simple lifestyle to be used by the Lord, but they did have the rights to take pay from the church, but they didn't do them. They laid that right aside. They had a right to take on a believing wife, not just any wife, but a believing wife. But they didn't take advantage of that right. They laid that down. And then he says, we also um, have a right to not work and to spend just time studying the word and preparing for what we do. But we don't take up that right because for the sake of the gospel, he's gonna say later, we, we lay down those rights so that we don't stumble you. Because even in that day, there were people going around and they were using ministry as a guise of wake, making a bunch of money and not having to work. And we have that on TV. We have that in certain churches. There are people who use the gospel for merchandise more than they do 
for salvation, for the the spiritual work that goes along with, with sharing the hope, the good news of Jesus. He says we have that right. And he gives examples there. He gives a few real quick examples from verse 7. He says, whoever goes to war at his own expense. Think about it like a soldier. A soldier doesn't go to war at his own expense. He doesn't have to raise funds to, to get his uniform and to get his MK or whatever he's shooting. He, he is provided for by the very government or the, the group that he's fighting for. And we do that. And that's a good thing. So if someone wants to go to war, he doesn't provide for himself. Someone else makes sure that he's provided for it. Now, no doubt, there's tons of work that goes into being a soldier. But what Paul is saying, this Christian life, whatever God calls us to do, he's going to provide for us to do that. And it is war. It is something that we have to prepare for. And then he says in verse 7, Who plants a vineyard and does not eat of its fruit? The example of a farmer. If you see a farmer out and he's working in his fields day and night, he's also a partaker of that food. No doubt he's going to sell a lot of those crops to make money to buy other things, but if he doesn't eat some of the food that's in that crop, he's going to waste away. He's not going to have the energy to plow and till the ground. So anybody who's a farmer partakes of the field. And then he says, Or who tends a flock and does not drink of the milk of the flock? He takes care of this flock. A good shepherd takes them to ground where there's plenty of water and there's plenty of things to eat and he watches over them to make sure that they're not in harm's way. But one of the benefits of being a shepherd is you always got fresh milk. And so he says, a shepherd himself partakes of the fruit of his labor. So he's laying down a principle over and over again. But he says here in verse eight, do I say these things as a mere man? Am I only using natural examples or is this a scriptural principle? Because sometimes I think we do get ideas about God. We get ideas about church. We get ideas about uh, whatever God would have us do. And it's like, it sounds really good, but it doesn't really have a scriptural basis. It might be one of our soapboxes, things, traditions of men. And so we got to be careful about those things. If Paul's just bringing up all these examples, but there's no scriptural basis to base his teaching on, then it's false doctrine, no matter how good it sounds. So Paul says, doesn't this also say this in scripture? And he gives an example. For it is written, verse 9, in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle an ox while it treads out the grain. So in in the Old Testament, there was a provision to make sure that an oxen that was being used to tread out grain, he would walk around a circle. Many times he'd be on a lead and he'd walk around in a circle and they'd have all this grain that was still in the shuck or the husk. And as the oxen would walk around, it would crush that grain until the outward exterior part would be taken off. And then they would take it to the threshing floor to be able to throw up and winnow. So when the wind blew across it, all the the husks would be blown off of it and then you'd just have the grain that you needed to produce bread and all kinds of other stuff. We use it today probably more to use to make cereal and bread, right? Well, in that day, they didn't have some machine to crush it. They would use an oxen. And an oxen doesn't eat diesel fuel like a tractor does. An oxen eats grain. So many people would put a muzzle over the ox so that it wouldn't eat the grain because then you lose profit, right? 
But the problem is, is if you do that, the auxin will wear out and it won't have any nutrition. It won't be nourished. It'll get worn out. It could die for lack of food. So nobody would do that. They wouldn't put a muzzle on an ox. As it treaded out the grain, they'd leave the muzzle off and then the oxen would be able to lean down and eat some while it was going. So there was even fruit in the oxen's labor. So he asks there in verse 9, is it oxen God is concerned about? Is that passage really for oxen? And I like one commentator, Warren Wiersbe, he actually said, this passage isn't for oxen because they can't read. <laughs> and I was like, wow, that's some pretty good horse sense for oxen. You know, The passage isn't for the oxen, but it's giving a principle for the temple of God at the time because those who worked in the temple, were, they were busy with the, the work of the Lord. They would prepare the sacrifice. They would be purified in, in the labor. They would do all of this stuff. They'd make the showbread. They'd move the tent or the tabernacle before it was a temple. So in order to do all that, someone needed to provide for their practical needs. And so God said there, you shall not muzzle an ox while it treads out the grain. Or he says, is it oxen that God is concerned about? Or does he say it altogether for our sakes? For our sakes, no doubt, this is written that he who plows should plow in hope. And he who threshes, threshes in hope should be a partaker of his hope. What did Jesus say about harvesting? He says, look up because the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. He looked at the kingdom of God and the sowing of the seed and the plowing of the, the hard, unbroken ground and the, the, then even the harvesting of it, the evangelism that we get to do. There are some that go and sow the seed of the word of God. There are some who go out and they water the seed of the word of God. And then God brings the increase and then he needs laborers to go in and chop off the, the, what grows and, and to remove the fruit of that labor. We are harvesters as God's people. But the deal is, is that those who work and are involved in the, the daily dealings of the church have to be provided for. For our sakes, he says, for the apostles, no doubt, this is written that he who plows should plow with hope and he who threshes in hope should be a partaker of his hope. If And here's the principle, verse 11. If we have sown spiritual things for you, if we have nourished you spiritually, he says, it, is it a great thing if we reap from your material things? Verse 12. If others are partakers of this right over you, are we not partakers of this right even more? He says, we have a right to be provided for. And yet, he says, nevertheless, we have not used this right, but we endure all things lest we hinder the gospel of Christ. He says, we would rather stay up all night and make tents and then spend all day sharing the gospel of Christ than for you to be able to say, well, he's just doing it for the money. And that is the case. That's important to Paul because he doesn't want anybody to not see Jesus because he is being a partaker of his right to take payment. Now, I will say, just as a, a personal note, I don't take payment for what we do here at the church. God has provided for me through U.S. Tool. And just a few weeks ago, he provided for us through you guys just getting together and giving us a, a, a nice little gift. 
And it was a huge blessing. I have to say that. And I hope that the others that were here and partook in that would be would know that though we I do make a pretty decent salary, we've been pr- trying to pay off debt because one day I'm hoping that we would be freed from debt so we won't have to have as much of an income. But until then, we're paying off debt like crazy. And we were going to back off from what we did in, in our own family Christmases. But because of what you guys did and just bringing together some money and giving it to us as, as just a thank you, it was a huge deal because we were able to bless our families in ways that we didn't think we were going to be able to. And no doubt we could back off from paying off our debt and stuff. It's just something we feel called to do. And maybe it won't ever really uh, translate, but it was I can't express in words how much a blessing that was. You know, we, we don't take a salary, uh, but that meant more to us than if we took a salary. It was just, and not only that, but you guys who have kids, when, when your kids all work together to do something, you know how it blesses you. Uh, when you guys got together outside of what we were doing and did something for us, we were just blown away at that. We were encouraged. And so we were strengthened in our own faith in that. But Paul is laying down this, this idea that we do have a right to take a pay. But we're not taking up that right because we don't want anybody to be hindered from receiving this gospel of God's grace and his provision for salvation. It has nothing to do with anybody gaining money. It has to do with his free gift. He says there, verse 13, Do you not know that those who ministered the holy things eat of the things of the temple, and those who serve at the altar partake of the offerings of the altar? Even so, the Lord has commanded that those who preach the gospel should live from the fruit of the gospel. Verse 15, But I have used none of these things, nor have I written these things, that it should be done so to me. For it would be better for me to die than that anyone should make my boasting void. For if I preach the gospel, I have nothing to boast about, for necessity is laid upon me. He says, Yes, woe unto me if I do not preach the gospel. For if I do this willingly, I have a reward in heaven is the idea. But if against my will, I have been entrusted with a stewardship. He says, what is my reward then? That when I preach the gospel, I may present the gospel of Christ without charge that I may not abuse my authority in the gospel. He says, my reward is not payment. My reward is that I've been walking worthy of the calling that God's given to me to share the hope of Christ. He says, verse 19, and he's going to kind of continue in this in the next chapter, and we won't uh, finish the chapter today. He's going to give more examples of people using their freedoms. But he says here, For though I am free from all men, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win the more. To the Jews I became as a Jew, that I might win the Jews. To those who are under the law, as under the law that I might win those who are under the law. To those who are without law, as without the law, not being without law toward God, but under the law toward Christ. You've heard people say this. They say, I, be- I want to become all things to all men, so that I might win some. And they use this as a guise to go and hang out at the bars and drink beers with people and try to share Jesus with them. Those people in my opinion, and in the opinions of many others, sometimes do more harm to the gospel than they do help. 
There needs to be a difference between salt and light. And I do believe that Jesus was called to go to those places that the Pharisees and the religious people of that day would not go. They were said about Jesus all the time. He eats with sinners and tax collectors. He can't be the son of God. Well, in in many ways, they, they had an idea about what God would and would not do. I believe that some people are called to be in those situations. I believe that there are many who are called to just share the gospel where they work and and all those kinds of things. But he's not saying here that when I went there, I practiced sin so I could relate with the culture and be relevant. What he's saying is, is that I've become all things to them. When they were eating bacon sandwiches, so was I. For them, it was unlawful to eat pig for the Jews. But he said, I'm free from that. So if there was somebody in there eating a bacon sandwich, I would not not talk to them because of it. I'd go in there and join them and I would talk to them about Jesus. And so he says, I've become all things to all men so that I might win those, so I might win the more. To the weak, verse 22, I became as weak that I might win the weak. I've become all things to all men that I might be by all means save some. This I do for the sake of the gospel that I may be a partaker of it with you. And then, so I want to finish there because uh, I'm running out of time, but also because I want to point out that his example, once again, like I said at the beginning, he's doing all these things to make sure he's, number one, not stumbling folks from seeing Jesus, but also he's doing these things as he's following the example of Jesus. Think about it. Jesus Christ, in order to come down and be the salvation for all men, had to leave the most wonderful place that ever existed. The very presence of God himself. Just the small description we get of heaven is just, we cannot even fathom what it's like. It would be like you and I, on a Sunday morning, sitting in our warm chair, maybe even next to a nice warm fire, and someone calls out and says, hey, not can you come to church, but I've got a flat tire and it's pouring rain right now. Now, if I'm sitting in my chair and I'm reading my book and I got my fire going and my daughter's sitting there with me and I'm all relaxed and it's pouring rain like it has been the last couple of days and somebody calls me and says, hey, I got a flat tire, can you come help me? I know what I should do, but I also know what I want to do. I want to stay in my nice, warm, comfortable spot. I don't want to go out there and change a tire, and I definitely don't want to do it in the pouring rain when it's 40 degrees. That's a small example. That's something that we can understand. But God, imagine this, has left something way more comfortable, way more perfect than you and I can ever even imagine. Think about the most comfortable, most warm, most inviting, like your happy place. Think about that. And it's not even close to what Jesus left to come down and be amongst us. And yet, though he has the right to stay there, he gave up that right, left heaven, came down to us, did all things without grumbling or complaining, and he loved, he so loved that he gave, not just his life, not just his inhabitation. He didn't just leave heaven, but he also came down here. 
He was born in a barn, laid in a trough. That's just the beginning. But then everything about his life was about serving others. In Mark, we studied that for over a year. Mark chapter 10, verse 45 says that the Son of Man didn't come, he came to, to serve, to give, and to sacrifice. He didn't come to, to be served, but he gave to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. I don't know about you guys, but that is not my first inclination. And, and I don't believe it was Paul's first inclination. But he saw Jesus' example and as an act of worship, as an act of earning his favor, God's favor, not salvation, but rewards in heaven, he did all of these things. And so maybe in some way we could learn a lot from the example of Paul. Not forcing it to happen, but saying, Lord, it's not my intention, it's not my first inclination to serve people. My first inclination is to call upon my rights and take them and grab them and say, this is mine, I'm taking it. But let's pray. Father, you know, our, it, that's our heart. We know what we should do many times, uh, but we also know what you've called us to. And uh, we don't love you because we love you in general. We love you because you first loved us. You showed us a pattern, an example of what our lives should look like in order to reveal the heart of the Father to a lost and dying and without hope world. And so, Lord, as we consider this new year that's coming up, Maybe this would be a year where we would call less upon our rights. And maybe this would be a year where we would see all the freedoms that we do have in Christ, but be willing to lay them down for the sake of others coming to know you. Father, thank you for loving us. Thank you for showing how much you loved us. Thank you for being our example through Jesus. And I pray that as we begin this new year, that Jesus would be made available and real in the lives of those around us through our example, through our patting, pattering our, patterning our lives after you, Lord. Thank you. And Lord, we just uh, we close this time of Bible study and we ask, continue to teach us through these words. And Lord, as we sing this last song, uh, show us what, what it is you're calling us to. What's, what's our call to, to walk in these truths? Not just to know them, but to put them to practice. What do you want us to do in this coming week? So thank you, Father, for meeting with us. In Jesus' name, amen.